you guys like art? Anybody in here? There's this famous painting, uh, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Has anybody heard of this? Johan Vermeer, beautiful painting. And if you examine it, um, there's, there's a few things that stand out about it. One is that it's unique because it's a servant girl, a peasant girl, with a gorgeous pearl earring in her ear. So that's got a sense of mystery to it. Why, why does she have that there? But there's, there's deeper things that have like, just eluded people for quite a while. How did Vermeer get such a beautiful brilliance on the pearl earring and on that side of her face where it shi- almost shines, it almost glows, when all around is so dark? And until recently, they didn't know how he was able to do that. They didn't understand the techniques that Vermeer used to do that. So they, the wonders of modern technology were able to x-ray the painting. And you know what they found out? He employed this technique, really, really unique technique, called underpainting. So Vermeer knew exactly what he wanted to do with his painting. He saw the finished picture in his head. And what he did was he painted a whole layer around there where it's so dark of black and brown. And then right where her face was going to go, in that one tiny spot where the earring was going to be, he underpainted white. And so it totally set the tone for everything else. He did this beautiful job of creating a painting before he even began finishing the final work so that everything would glow, so that everything would be so beautiful. And the thing is, as beautiful as that is on the, on the surface, you can't really understand how beautiful it is until you understand the great love and care and underpainting that the master painter took to set the, set the frame, to set everything up for this beautiful painting, the underpainting, the, the layers beneath it. And it's the same with this prayer today. As we read this prayer of Jonah, it's a beautiful prayer. It's gorgeous. Like, it's poetic. It's, it's wonderful. It's in a crazy place that it's happening. But if we miss some of the deeper layers of what's going on here, we'll miss out on the deeper beauty and some of the things that God, I believe, wants to say to us today. So we go with me on a journey into the layers of this painting of Jonah's prayer and just kind of dig in. The first layer we're going to talk about, we're just going to walk through the prayer and dissect what's going on in Jonah's heart and in his mind as he's in the belly of the fish. And then we're going to dig a little deeper at the end of the sermon into two more quick layers. Sound good? All right. Awesome. So one of the questions this raises with me is, is this, like, What's going on with Jonah? I mean, think about it for a second. This is probably a prayer experience that we'll never have. The guy's at the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish. Like I could have entitled the sermon Meditations in Mucus. It's gross, right? Like what's in the fish with him? What's his skin look like? Is it wrinkled yet? What are the digestive juices? You you know what I'm saying? It's gross. What's going on with Jonah and the fish? And if we're not careful, the context of that is so bizarre that we just kind of get stuck there. This is is crazy what's going on with Jonah. But I don't want to just look at the surface. I want to look at these layers underneath and understand something, that God's grace was actually at work in Jonah's life long before he even had the sense to pray this prayer. That God was doing something to set up for this beautiful prayer. And he'd be in no place to pray if it wasn't for the grace of God. So let's look at this first layer of Jonah's prayer. And if you work your way through it, you actually see something that I love. You begin to see Jonah's heart from start to finish just totally turn. 
you see this drastic change. Let's read, watch, uh, verse number one of chapter two. Notice the beginning. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Now, I don't know if you've thought about what it says there, but that's kind of an understatement. I was in distress. It's, it's, it's a total euphemistic way of praying, right? It's not as if somehow, some way, randomly, mysteriously, distress just fell upon him. Jonah, what did he do? He totally ran from God, right? Ran the opposite way that God had called him to. Praise God that he listens to our prayers that are euphemistic and miss the point and are shallow, one-sided prayers. Have you guys ever prayed like that? I pray prayers like that all the time that miss the point. Pray prayers like you just had this whole week of like rebelling against God, sin after sin after sin, and then you come to God and you're like, you have the audacity to say, where you at, God? You know, I'm kind of having a tough week here. I wish you'd show up. Anybody ever prayed prayers like that? Yeah. Yeah, so that's what Jonah is doing. He ran from God, and Jonah knew that this distress was a direct result of his running from God, that he had turned from God time after time. He had refused to turn around and follow God's way. Grace after grace, chance after chance, God had given him, and he kept refusing. But we see a bit of progress, right? Look at what he says next. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. So Jonah's starting to say, but I realized that this wasn't just some random occurrence. Like, God, this, this is your work, isn't it? You're behind this. You cast me into the sea. Jonah's maybe moving a little closer to acknowledging his guilt, to owning what it is that brought him here. God, this distress was brought on me by you. Isn't, isn't it amazing that God in his love for us will bring distress upon us to turn us back to him? And then, and then as that distress does his work, he removes the distress. Why? He's not mean. God's not capricious. He's not out to get us, right? He doesn't want us to needlessly suffer, but he is determined to redeem us. He'll bring trouble in our lives in order to turn us back to him. That's what Kenny talked about quite a bit last week, the uncomfortable grace of God. And you see that here. It's not just everyday distress. It's God's uncomfortable grace that's at work redeeming a rebel's life. He brought Jonah into this time of trouble, but it's good trouble. It's trouble that's meant to turn him around. It's trouble that's meant to get a hold of his heart and get his eyes to look up to heaven and cry out to the Lord. And Jonah's beginning to realize what's going on about him. He's, he's beginning to get a right mind, if you will. Think about it. He's, he's kind of been out of his mind, hasn't he? He actually thought he could run from God. That's a really bad idea. Right? Have you guys ever tried to do that? Oh, look at that. At least three of us have. That's good. He was actually trying to run from the presence of God. It's so delusional. But here we see this right-mindedness returning to him. He says next, I'm, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your temple. That's interesting to me because he's turning now toward the presence of God, the presence of God in the temple, the, the, 
the place where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. He's longing to see it again. He's longing to be in God's presence. Now, this is the guy who was just doing what? Running from God's presence. In chapter one, it said it twice. He took, he went down to Joppa to get away from the presence of God. He bought a ticket on a boat in order to flee from the presence of God. And now he's saying, I want to see your presence again. I want to be with you again. It's the same guy. And he says next, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. What a picture of Jonah's deep sea adventure. Weeds wrapping around his head, crushed under the pounds per square inch of water, threatening to take his life out, right? I can't help but think of Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 1 where he says, we were far far from our ability to endure in our hearts, but we felt this sense that this had to be it, that death was looming over us. There's no hope. He's done. It's finished. He's run from God. The storm came. He fell off the boat into the sea. He's drowning. The seaweed's wrapping around him. It's over. There's no hope. It's a picture of how we get ourselves away from God, how we run from God and get into impossible situations we can't get ourselves out of. Impossible situations, maybe in our marriages or our finances, all kinds of situations we can get into that we finally say, oh my gosh, I have no hope. God, please do something. Help me, save me. And that's where Jonah's at in this moment. What a picture there is as Jonah makes this confession. I went down to the land whose whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet... I love that word. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Then he says, when my life was fainting away, what a sweet moment. I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord. It's like as we read this part of the prayer, we should begin to to like hear the orchestra begin to rumble and the the timpani begin to build, you know, we should hear the crescendo start to build. Like this is a guy who's been running from God and now his heart is turning back toward the Lord. I know um, recently Ivan and I went on a trip up to Big Sur, two day trip. And uh, I don't know about you guys. I kind of love my wife. Do you love my wife too? Okay, good. You married dudes, you love your wives? Yeah, the silent nods from all the guys. I love it. I have these moments on the trip where the first day I'm just kind of caught up with the scenery and the beauty and hanging out with Ivan, but as the trip keeps going on, my heart starts to turn toward Nancy, start to think about her, start talking to Ivan about her, start texting her. I miss you, Nancy. You have these moments where your heart starts to turn toward the person you love. You're yearning for them. You're longing for them. And that's, that's what's beginning to go on here. Jonah's beginning to remember his God, that he's a prophet of God, that God is a God of love and mercy. God is his source of life and hope. And he's beginning to turn his heart toward God. That's the operation of the grace of God in our lives, isn't it? It's like God gives us our minds back. God gives us our heart back. We start to love again. We start to feel again. We start to understand and see things clearly again. That's what God's grace is doing in Jonah. It's making him alive again. 
And at this part of the prayer, we see his sense coming back. And I, like when I read this prayer, I just want to like applaud and like stand up and shout because this is awesome because this man is being raised from death to life. Raised up to what he can't be on his own, but what only God can make him, right? From dark to light, it's that Sammy Sosa, and it's, anybody? (laughs) I I tried to go with it, Tom. (laughs) For those of you guys that don't know, um, we have a celebrity in the building, and he's awesome, awesome rapper, words played. Google words played. You'll like the song. Yep, just a quick plug. We aren't done, though. The timpani's still rolling. We haven't reached the full crescendo yet. Like, look at what happens next. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And perhaps Jonah's thinking about that moment on the boat. You guys remember the tempest, the waves, the lightning? It's like that scene in perfect storm where it's threatening to just rip the boat apart and everybody's freaking out and the sailors what do they do they run to their idols and they start praying to their idols and you guys know what happens nothing right because they're idols so so Jonah's saying you can't put your hope in idols right that's what he's saying there's no place to run there's no place to seek hope there's no place to go there's only one place where life and hope and grace and, and joy can be found and that is in the Lord. Salvation is the Lord's, is what he says. All those things that you thought you could trust, all those things you thought would help you in the tough times, they have nothing to offer you. Eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, mouths that can't speak, vain idols. They don't offer us grace. They don't free our lives. They don't give us what we're searching for. So as Jonah's situation is turning around, as the whale is literally turning him around, as his heart in his prayer we see is beginning to turn around from rebellion to worship, even with greater crescendo, he says this, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Let me ask you guys something. Whenever in the Old Testament somebody said they were going to sacrifice to God, why would they do that? What are they sacrificing for? Somebody, a brave soul. Yeah, for sin, right? So Jonah is finally confessing. He's admitting his guilt. He's admitting his sin, his need for forgiveness. Jonah's come home. This is the most beautiful moment in the story of Jonah to me. Jonah's realized how far his heart was. I mean, his body was running pretty fast, but his heart was even further away from God. And he's saying, It's not just some kind of distress that fell on me from a fallen world. I'm realizing now, God, I did this. I looked you in the face and I said, God, no. I don't want it your way. I want it my way. I'm going to run as far as I can, as fast as I can from you. I I confess, here I am in the belly of this fish and I'm caught. And I'm realizing how foolish that was. And my heart is full of of gratitude that you've saved me. I'm here offering the sacrifice of thanksgiving to you because you've been gracious and you've saved me. What an amazing turnaround. He's admitting the biggest problem isn't just something out there. The biggest problem is right here in his own heart. 
The sin, the rebellion, the brokenness, the thing inside, the self-desire that drives his life toward his own destiny apart from God and God's plan for him, God's gracious, loving plan for him. He wants it his way, but he's realized that. What a turnaround. Do you guys see the progression through this prayer? That's just the first layer. That's the operation of God's grace. And the second layer, though, is, is how this applies to all of us. Because, guys, there's this maybe a surface of the painting, but when we read this prayer, we realize something. This prayer doesn't just picture Jonah's story. That's important. But we're all like Jonah. I think if we admit it, we can see a bit of ourselves, each one of us, in this story Every person who's ever lived. And you hear these words like drowning and the deep and the tempest. And throughout scripture, over and over, those words are used to describe the state of people sinking away from God, apart from God's grace. That's a picture of all of us apart from the loving grace of God. Over and over we see that. So whether we've never believed or whether we've believed a thousand times and we still struggle, we're all like Jonah. We all try to run from God's presence. Maybe you do that in a location. Maybe you don't. Jonah ran, like Kenny pointed out last week, he ran from the land to the sea as if God somehow wasn't the God of the sea. We have a statement about that in our culture that's pretty big, right? You guys know about that. What happens in Vegas? What? Yeah, because we all want that place. We all want that place where we can go and get away and nobody knows. I think the truth is, if we're all honest, we all probably have our own personal Vegas somewhere in our heart. That place we go that it's like, hey, what happens here stays here. Nobody knows. God's still the God of Vegas. And his gracious pursuing love is there too. And maybe you look and you're like, this is just a moment where I act like God doesn't exist. You guys ever done that? I remember when Ivan was young, we used to play, we turned the lights out in the house and I'd be the scary dude. And I'd come, count to 10 and then he'd hide. But we, it was like hide and seek, but with a bit of horror movie in it. <laughs> it was like, just to ant, up the ante. And, like, you know? and I remember um, walking in one time and Ivan's like, on my bed, and this is before he was old enough to realize this, he had like the pillow over his face, but his entire body <laughs> is sticking out, right? And it's like, can't see me, you can't see me. It's like, no, you can't see me. I can totally see you right now. <laughs> we do that with God, don't we? If I close my eyes, he can't see me. If I act like I didn't have that thought, he won't know about it. Mm. Maybe it's a moment where we want to be independent of God. A moment where maybe we feel more self-righteous than we ought to. We forget that the righteousness we have is a gift of grace. And in those moments, I'm actually running from the plan, from the purpose, from the presence of God. Maybe I have a plan for my life and I want my plan more than God's plan. There isn't a person who's ever existed that in some way doesn't rebel against God, the God of grace. They don't run from God's presence. They don't realize that they're in dire, dire need and difficulty. None of us are free from the need of the glorious rescue of God's grace. 
Amen? This prayer also pictures the vanity of our idolatry because just like Jonah, we forget the creator and I think we tend to look for meaning and purpose and hope and value in the creation, right? God's created things. We deify the creation and we forget the creator. We try to turn things into our life, into our own personal messiahs. If I had this, if this worked out, then I'd be happy, then I'd be satisfied. We have our functional saviors, right? And so we live for power, we live for possessions, we live for human acceptance, we live for success, we live for control of our destiny. We live for the possession of material things, even in ministry. Some of you ministers out there, you guys can, gospel community, hey, we're all ministers, right? Priests of all believers. Have you guys ever done something for God in the name of ministry or doing a Bible study or doing something for somebody in order to gain prominence or place or power in other people's eyes? Yeah, it's a heart struggle for me every week. Every week. Not to minister out of a place of longing for acceptance. It's an idol I have to keep knocking off the throne of my heart. And distress, moments like this in Jonah's life, distress will always reveal the impotence, the weakness of your idol to actually give you life, to give you help, to give you hope. Because in those moments of distress, your idol has nothing to offer. I love what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10. It's one of those uh, sarcastic passages in scripture. And yes, the Bible has sarcasm. I love that. Jeremiah calls the idols that people worship, he calls them scarecrows in a melon patch. That's awesome. He says, you dress them up, you put gold on them, you make them look pretty, but you have to kind of prop them up and nail them to a pole, otherwise they're just going to fall. And then he says, but who is like the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one true God? Like, what a contrast. A scarecrow and a melon patch versus the living, breathing, true God. Question for you, could there be a scarecrow and a melon patch that you're holding on to? A scarecrow and the melon patch that you're seeking to get life from. Something that you've built with your own hands that's now replaced the God who made you. Could your job maybe have a place it was never meant to have? Could a relationship have a place it was never meant to have? Could your dreams for your family or your house have a place they were never meant to have? Your position, maybe even a desire for a good thing has become a bad thing because that desire has become an ultimate thing and it's replaced God for you. And could this prayer be given by God to you right now in this moment to remind you once again that that thing has no power to give you life, has no power to save you or give you the hope you're longing for. And then, I mean, let's face it, who here doesn't have sin to confess? Like, we're getting ready to take communion in a few minutes and gather together and confess our sin. Who here this week has lived a sinless, perfect week? Anyone? (laughs) Two people in the back. You guys just sinned. (laughs) Right? How about about today, this morning? Did you just have a sinless, perfect morning? Your attitude was all right? You just worshiped God? Or you trusted in him perfectly? 
How would you like it if we just took a videotape of your week and just threw it up there for congregational exegesis to like, hmm, get the circles and the lines, like we're re- recounting the Pacquiao fight? It should be the Mayweather fight, right? I say Pacquiao, but Mayweather won. beautiful. (laughs) When we think of that, shouldn't we be a humble people? Man, I wish I was more humble when I think about how broken I am apart from God's grace. Guys, I know my heart. I'm a self-righteous jerk, honestly. Like, I'll confess it to you because I need to. We need to confess to each other. Like, There are more times, more often than not, I struggle with self-righteousness. I think I'm one of the good guys. I'm in ministry. I do good things for God, unlike those people, right? Anybody ever struggle with those kinds of thoughts? We all have our areas of self-righteousness that we prop ourselves up with, we feel good about, and look down at the other people who don't do as good in those areas of our life. I begin to think I'm okay. I begin to think perhaps I've escaped my need for God's grace. You see, the moment you are able to convince yourself that you're righteous, you quit seeking grace for yourself and for others. That's what we see in Jonah's life. That's why he didn't want to go. I'm righteous. I've got it together. I don't want to go to those sinners. Right? How much do you wake up each morning and embrace your need for God's grace? How much do you cry out for his help? How much do you pray that God would protect you from you? God, help us to celebrate grace because we are humbly admitting that we're sinners. Apart from your grace, we are sinking and without hope. But there's a third layer, and it's the briefest layer, and I'll close with this. It's very clear from this prayer that This prayer, this passage of scripture, pictures the person and work of Jesus. And Kenny works from this passage last week. I'm going to dig back into it. Matthew 12, chapter 40. Jesus is talking to his followers, and he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, there's hope today because there came a greater Jonah. And this Jonah found himself in distress, not because he was unrighteous and running from God, but because he was righteous and running toward God's plan. Not because he was a rebel, but because he was obedient. Jesus is the greater Jonah because he was distressed by the plan and the purpose of God. Peter says that, right, in Acts, in the first sermon in Acts chapter two, he stands up, as he's talking about Jesus, he says it wasn't just the work of evil man, but this was the foreordained plan of God that led Jesus to the cross. So Jesus was distressed because of the redemptive plan of God. He wasn't distressed because he was a sinful, rebellious man, but because he was a spotless lamb. Willing to take on your sin, willing to take on my sin, the sin of the whole world and to make us right with the Father, to get us back into life, to get us back on God's path so that redemption would be reality for for us. And he's separated from the Father. I mean, have you ever thought about that? 
that there was a time my brain can barely understand. I, I can't grasp it. I've thought about it a lot. There was a time when the triune God was rent asunder as the father turned his back on the son. Why? For you and for me. So he would never have to turn his back on us. And what did Jesus do in that moment? He fully entrusted himself to the father. In that moment where he's alone in the garden, where he's shaking and trembling and sweating great drops of blood, knowing what's coming for him, he entrusts himself to dad. I don't fully understand it, but I trust you. The second Jonah didn't just face death, he died. But three days later, three days later, he was vindicated by the Father, amen? Three days later, he rose victorious over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave, over everything that we fear. Christ rose victorious. And that dark moment of disaster was a glorious moment of grace. So you see, this prayer of Jonah is a prayer of one man, but it's more than that. If you dig down in the layers, it's a prayer about all of us. All of us and our need for God's grace and our pursuit of things outside of God. But it's also that third layer. It's also a portrait of the grace that the one man Jesus, who is, he's our life, guys. He's our hope. He's our redemption, right? Is your heart turning to him? Close your eyes with me. I just want to ask you some questions. I want to ask you to reflect on these. Is your heart turning to Christ in this moment? Is Jesus your actual, functional, motivational, rubber-meets-the-road hope? Does he motivate the choices you make? Does he motivate the, the words you say, the things you do? Does he get you up in the morning and put you to bed at night? I don't want to add new content toward the end of the message, but I think we know this. Like, you're a worshiper. It's not just an activity we do on Sundays. Worship is an identity. It's, it's inescapable. And there's something that rules your heart. And that's the place Jonah leaves us in this prayer. Think about this. There's, there's only two ways to live, and I'm wrapping this up, Okay. I'm either wrapping my hands around vain idols that can't actually give, my, give me life. Sadly, I've, I've called a scarecrow in a melon patch, my Lord. Or I've placed my hands in the God of glorious grace. Where are you right now? Where are you? Whether this is the first time or the 101st time you've heard the gospel, you can place your trust in the only God who won't give up on you the one who loved you, gave himself for you. The God who's been working on this underpainting of this moment that you're sitting here. There's been a, a, a lifetime of grace that God has been in work preparing you for this moment. As you look upon the layers of this prayer, I pray that you won't only see Jonah, but you'll see yourself and your continuing, deepening, ever-present need for a God of grace. And may you see how God gave that grace to you. How he's calling us to ditch those idols by the power of his Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us, to find the life that he purchased for us. It's, it's yours today. You can have it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for capturing this moment of prayer in the life of the prophet. 
as the musicians come, I, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the way that that pictures all of us and the depth of our, our need for you. For the way that it's a portrait of the life of the Lord Jesus. The one place that we can find hope. God, I, I confess with the words of John Calvin that my heart, I believe all our hearts are idol factories. We're capable of turning everything in creation into an object of our worship. And in doing so, forgetting you, placing ourselves in, in danger and at risk. Oh, Lord, won't you in your grace turn our hearts to you more deeply, more fully, more comprehensively, more joyfully, more hopefully turn our hearts to you? May that shape the way we live. Pray these things in Jesus' name.